brought to you by Business Fights Poverty. Hello and welcome to Business Fights Poverty's Social Impact Pioneers podcast series. I am Katie Heisen, Director of Thought Leadership. These interviews with social impact pioneers provide you with insights, different perspectives, advice, and maybe a little inspiration, giving you first-hand understanding of how businesses and others are tackling some of the world's biggest social challenges so that you can learn from those who have been there before, helping you in your decision-making and action-taking. Before I start our podcast conversation today, I want to do a spot of jargon busting. I know that the terms equality and equity are banded around in social impact circles. But if you're like me and think that equity is a financial term reserved for shareholder value in a business, or that indeed equity and equality can be pretty well interchanged when it comes to social impact issues, then I'm going to pause and share with you a simple explanation that the nice people from the National Association of Colleges and Employers penned. They explain the term equity refers to fairness and justice, and is distinguished from equality, whereas equality, they say, means providing the same to all. Equity means recognising that we do not all start from the same place and must acknowledge and make adjustments to imbalances. The process, they say, is ongoing, requiring us to identify and overcome intentional and unintentional barriers arising from bias or systemic structures. And today's podcast conversation is with the wonderful Rani Puran and Deepika Yadav. Both Rani and Deepika are experts in equity, and they work for the International Finance Corporation. You'll hear us referring to the IFC in the podcast, which is also part of the World Bank. Rani and Deepika are both fundamental to the IFC's diversity, equity and inclusion work. And they're here today to talk with us about creating social impact and in particular equity for women. So often we zoom into one particular example of the ways we can help women access and engage with work. But this conversation is a rare one as we're going to take you on a journey to look at both the global perspective and also local interactions. What can we learn from one location and how could we potentially apply this sensitively elsewhere? Given their expertise and global viewpoint, we will be hearing about the data and the behavioural insights, where the greatest progress has been made in helping people to balance up gender issues and what the greatest challenges are, as well as the intersections between business, governments and other sectors in order to help create equity for all going forward. So without further ado, Rani, Deepika, welcome. Thank you so much for having us, Katie. Thank you for having us, Katie. I'm excited about it. Ah, great to have you. And thank you for giving up your time today to talk to us. And I wanted to open our conversation. You've both been sort of come on a real journey to be working for and indeed leading the efforts on diversity, equity and inclusion, which you will hear um, for those listening being referred to sometimes as DEI. 
at the IFC, which is a member of the World Bank Group. But you both have quite different paths to get to this point. What sort of motivated you each to lean in and to choose careers in this space? Rani, perhaps you wouldn't mind going first. Sure. The opportunity to fundamentally shift workplace culture is what drew me to DEI at the beginning. And then this role leading the DEI team at IFC. Actually, in 2017, I was working at a Canadian headquartered bank in Toronto in the anti-money laundering department. And as that program was winding down, an opportunity arose to be an advisor to wealth and global asset management. And at the time, the bank had a lot of heat and light around DEI and enjoyed very strong CEO support for the program. So I was drawn to that sense of creating change. On an emotional level, gender equality within the DEI space appeals to me because I grew up surrounded by women, starting with my grandmother's generation on my mother's side, who worked by choice. And my grandmother was a successful businesswoman in the Caribbean, married with three children, and has been a very powerful role model. I was fortunate to have many conversations with her over the years, up until she passed in 2016 at the age of 97, and hear about the role that work played in her life, the empowerment it gave her. And these conversations have inspired me in my DEI roles to build workplaces and societies that work for women. Wow, she sounds really cool. And it just shows that that kind of role models you hear again and again, or you see it written down, but actually what it means in practice is is so important. Topika, what about yourself? How did you come to to be part of this community? I have to say, Katie, my path has been a bit different. I grew up in India, where the female labor force participation is very low, with only 19% of women participate in the labor force, compared to 75% men. In my family and around me, I saw most women taking up unpaid care and household responsibilities. They were not allowed to work outside the house, and very few women even graduated from high school. My mother, like most other women, was not allowed to go outside and work and did not have an education to do so. She then started designing clothes for her friends and started getting a lot more attention and clients. Within a few years, her business grew exponentially. And then I could see how empowering that experience was for her. I could see the difference between her and other women who were not able to contribute to the economy or participate in the labor force in a formal way. It allowed me to see firsthand how women in the workforce can help families, economies, and the society. This experience at very early age made me interested in gender equality. After graduating with an engineering degree and working in technology for over three years, I saw a similar gender imbalance in STEM and the private sector. I moved to international development with a focus on gender and women's economic empowerment. Now at IFC, I'm working to develop the gender strategy, and also how IFC can be a more inclusive and equitable workplace for women. And again, that kind of, you get that sense that actually those kind of role models don't necessarily have to be formal. Does that make sense? You don't have to have the kind of the big, high-powering job to inspire and encourage your young people or communities around you. Actually, it's just getting out there and, and going for it. Thank you both for sharing those stories with us. And I just wanted to move on. You've each chosen a favourite article, I know, for us today, both on diversity, equity and inclusion. For anybody who is used to listening to our podcasts, 
we're going to slightly deviate here because Rani and Topeka have each brought an article and they're going to critique them in terms of where gender equality and equity in general has kind of moved and shifted. They're both relatively recently published, I think, but perhaps Rani, would you mind sort of introducing your article and and why you've chosen it? So I've chosen a piece from The Guardian from June of this year, profiling a panel discussion on gender equality. And Julia Gillard, Australia's first female prime minister, was a participant in the panel. And there's a quote that caught my attention, which is, women risk becoming invisible behind the screen. And one of the primary reasons for this is that women often choose to work disproportionately from home when compared to men due to the burden of care responsibilities that they've traditionally held, be that caring for children or caring for elderly parents, other relatives. Now, the big potential implication of this is that women may not have access to the in-person opportunities which create visibility as we increasingly move to a hybrid uh, work model and that becomes the norm. So components of the workplace like manager FaceTime, those water cooler conversations or the ability to engage in the type of collaborative work that comes with in-person interaction may not be as frequently available. And what this means ultimately is that chances for career progression may be diminished for women. And IFC, this is an issue to which we're achieved. And we recently achieved level two in our edge certification process. In fact, we achieved that this year. And we are looking at continuous improvement in creating a workplace where men and women are on equal footing to thrive and will have access to the types of opportunities that this article highlights. For our listeners that don't know what EDGE is, it's assessment tool that allows IFC and other companies to benchmark themselves against each other in a number of areas that demonstrate commitment and progress to the gender equality agenda. And IFC actually uh, provides consulting services on EDGE to our clients. And we have had successful implementations with 11 companies and have four more in progress. Cool. And for anybody who's listening wants to know more about that EDGE tool, I'll put a link into the words that sit alongside the podcast so you can have a look at it. And and Rani, maybe they can reach out to you afterwards. I might sort of stick in your LinkedIn profile link as well. Topeka, do you want to introduce your article now? Why have you chosen it? What is it? Tell us a bit about it. Yes, I chose the article that talks about Eliza Reid, Iceland's first lady, and her reflections about why Iceland ranks first in gender equality, things they are doing well, such as parentally, and what are some things that they can still improve on, such as uh, immigration support. In the article, she recalls a movement in 1975 when Icelandic women took a day off to demonstrate their importance to the society. It was a turning point in the battle of gender equality, and it showed that when women stopped working, whether paid work at their jobs or unpaid work at home, the country shut down. Eliza also mentions that it was not just women, but there were men supporting this, and how important it was to have men as allies in the fight for gender equality. At IFC as well, we are looking at ways to engage men in gender equality and how to encourage men to take parental leave. This also relates a little bit with what Rani said, when women take parental leave or take advantage of remote working policies, they are out of office for quite some time. And this impacts their career progression, sponsorship and mentorship opportunities. 
Yeah, absolutely. And I definitely have experienced that firsthand. It's really tricky to get going again. For those listening, why are these examples, these articles that you've chosen, particularly exemplifying the sort of progress or indeed the stagnation in the area of gender equality? Like, why is it that you've chosen them? And what learning can we then apply to other areas of the wider diversity, equity and inclusion landscape? One of the most important lessons is the impact regulatory disclosure can have in creating change. So the article in The Guardian, which talks about uh, Julia Gillard's government, also mentioned that under her, the Workplace Gender Equality Act was introduced in 2012. And this piece of legislation created the Workplace Gender Equality Agency. And as a result, large employers were or are obligated to report the composition of their workforce and pay details to that agency. What we've seen is that regulatory disclosure can be a catalyst for change. It builds transparency and accountability around topics that matter, not just to employees, but also external stakeholders. Now, Australia is not the only country to move in this direction. We've talked about Iceland today. They're also a country that has regulatory disclosures. And in fact, there are 18 OECD countries which have introduced gender disaggregated pay reporting for private sector companies. In particular, my own home, Canada, requires aggregated pay gap reporting, not only for gender, but actually for what's designated as protected groups under legislation. And that means there's pay reporting for persons with disabilities, visible minorities, and Indigenous peoples. So we're seeing here the importance of regulatory disclosure on hot topics, and not just in the gender equality realm, but as it applies to the workplace experience of other equity-seeking groups. Oh my goodness, I didn't know that. I would love to know more about that in particular. For anybody listening, a particular bugbear of mine is like, actually, that regulatory piece is so important, particularly when it's not, there's no leadership, you know, value add to your brand. You're not going to make money off the fact that you've got this sort of, you know, lowered and closed this pay gap. And where there isn't a a leadership opportunity to make loads of money off the back of it, that regulation just to bring, kind of create that level playing field has to be important. Topeka, what about yourself? I mean, is there a particular piece that's jumping out at you from from that article perspective that we should be learning from? Yes, Katie. Gender equality is a journey. And as we see from Iceland, even though they are first in gender equality, they still have a lot of work to do and they're expanding their focus now to look at intersectionality, such as what opportunities do immigrant women have or women of color have versus indigenous women. As part of my work in developing the gender strategy, we are also looking at intersectionality. We are looking at how the workplace experiences and expectations differ for women of color, women with disabilities, and women from a specific region. And I do have to agree with Rani and you that regulatory disclosure, bringing more transparency to these things will definitely accelerate change. Please, fingers crossed. Um, You ladies are both in a position that's quite special, being able to see across so many different jurisdictions and and work with so many different organisations. I know collaboration is, is very high on your agenda. I was wondering whether you could share the trends that you're particularly seeing in the area that you're working on that perhaps others might not be aware of 
that you really want to highlight? I have to say the top two would be flexible and hybrid working and equal pay for equal work. We have touched a little bit about one component of flexible and hybrid working that is parental leave. I would want to talk a little bit about flexible working. We are doing an analysis on how flexible working impacts specific groups of women, such as women of color, women with disabilities, differently. We are piloting a hybrid work model which aims to balance the flexibility of working from home with the advantage of working with colleagues and clients in person, which includes innovation, community, and team building. And the second one, equal pay for equal work, uh, we saw this informative discussion on LinkedIn where a marketing campaign was done showing a half eaten burger and asking if you wouldn't accept 16% less, then why should women? At IFC, we do annual pay gap analysis and have found that there is no unexplained pay gap. I would want to emphasize that doing these analysis and bringing transparency to these processes is very critical. Definitely. From my experience anyway, you know, as soon as you've got a business case that you can put in front of people and the, and the detail it makes such a difference. Again, for anybody listening, I will do my best to get the links so that you guys can see this data as well. Rani, what about yourself? What trends are you seeing? I'd like to reinforce the importance of equal pay for equal work. So a couple of minutes ago, I spoke about the importance of regulatory disclosure and the examples that I provided were in the pay equity area. And this is a topic that continues to grow in importance. As Deepika mentioned, we conduct regular pay gap analyses at IFC. Equally important is to communicate the findings of the analyses to employees and to build their understanding of what we mean when we talk about the gender pay gap. So there are two components to understanding the gender pay gap. The first component is the concept of equal pay for equal work, which means men and women doing exactly the same job should be compensated in the same way. And then the other component that drives the gender pay gap is workforce representation. And we all know that as we move through senior levels of an organization, the representation of women diminishes, right? Sometimes called the leaking pipeline. So it's very important to understand that you can achieve pay equity, but unless you also close this representation gap, a gender pay gap will persist. And that's why the communications is so important. And so again, I'm going to, Stick as many links as I possibly can into the words that sit alongside so that everybody else can see this um, work too. Thank you, Rani, for highlighting that piece. And I wanted to close out our conversation today. Given this plethora of work that you've got going on, what's next for you? What do you feel is, is the sort of next on the horizon for gender, equality and DEI? Deepika and I have been sharing with you today the work we're doing around the cultural determinants in the workplace and what kind of environment you need to have equity and inclusion to ensure that it's a workplace that works for women. We are also committed to ensuring that we work on the representation of women across the organization, including at senior levels. So at IFC, we are committed to achieving gender parity across the entire organization. And we use a key metric called the Gender Balance Index for GBI. And this is a weighted index which promotes greater gender distribution across all grades. So for example, at the end of our fiscal year, which was June, 
of this year, our gender balance index was 0.844. That's a good score because a score of one indicates that we've got gender parity. At the same time, it indicates to us that we have more work to do. We need to hire more women into managerial roles and into our senior technical grades if we want to close this gap. A little bit of action for you there. <laughs> Closing that last gap. And so often the last bits are really the tricky bits. Topeka, what about yourself? What's next for you? Yes, uh, we are implementing our EDGE action plan, which has four main components to it. First being parental leave, second with DEI in performance management, and process-specific unconscious bias trainings. And the last one with communicating about our equal pay for equal work. We are also looking at different regions and working very closely with country managers and regional directors to see what are some of the things that are similar between all our regions that we work in and what are some of the differences that we can learn from. What are some cross-learning opportunities that we have? To give you an example, we are working in Latin America with Afro-Latinos and providing access to opportunities and learning within IFC. And we are also looking at India about what are some specific diversity requirements with respect to caste or microdiversities such as sub-religions in India as well. And what is it that we can learn from India and Latin America and implement in other countries as well? Yeah, when it gets down to sort of culturally different, it becomes so important that sort of understanding and, and benefit. That wraps up our conversation today, ladies. I know that we could have carried on hearing about you and the work that you're doing for a lot longer. But Rani Topeka, thank you very much for giving up your time and for sharing those important pieces that you're working on with us today. Thank you so much, Katie. Thank you. And if you like what you've heard today, please do rate and subscribe to us. I would also love to hear your feedback. So please do drop me a line at any time. I'm Katie at businessfightspoverty.org. Many thanks. Brought to you by Business Fights Poverty.